The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Before we start, please note that this episode discusses gender violence that some people may find disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. I'm Anissa Beta from the School of Culture and Communication, the University of Melbourne. I'm your host for this week's episode. UN Women recently called violence against women as the shadow pandemic. As COVID-19 gets worse, so does women's experience of domestic violence. Indonesia's National Commission on Violence Against Women, or Komnas Perempuan, recently reported that the pandemic has reduced victims' access to safe reporting, aggravating the already elevated risk of domestic violence during the outbreak. Indonesia actually ratified the anti-domestic violence law in 2004. But has it been effective? What can we learn from the victims? What can we do better? We're very fortunate to be able to speak to Balowin Jones, who recently published a book chapter titled The Politics of Care, a study of domestic violence in Aceh. Balowin Jones is a PhD candidate at the Center for Indonesia Law, Islam, and Society at Melbourne Law School. Balowin has written extensively on domestic violence in Indonesia. We'll share the details on the episode's notes. Balowin's doctoral thesis examines the implementation of the anti-domestic violence law in Indonesia with a focus on the intersection between gender, religion, and law. She also currently holds the position of Honorary Fellow at Melbourne Law School teaching criminal law. Hi, Balowin. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Anissa. Thanks for having me. In your recently published book chapter, you discuss the Indonesian Anti-Domestic Violence Law or Undang-Undang Penghapusan Kekerasan Dalam Rumah Tangga, which was ratified in 2004. Could you explain to us a little bit about what the law regulates? Yeah, of course. Indonesia's Anti-Domestic Violence Law basically criminalizes four types of violence, physical, psychological, sexual, and economic violence in the household. In addition to criminalization, the law also recognizes domestic violence as a human rights violation and a form of gendered violence. So it's been more than 17 years since the law was ratified. Has it been effective, you think? Assessing efficacy of the law is actually quite a difficult thing to do due to the lack of data that we have on domestic violence, particularly pre-2004, as a point of comparison for before the law was enacted. I do most of my research in Aceh, and that's particularly an issue in Aceh because of the tsunami and the civil war that occurred before this law was enacted. However, we do know that there's been an increase in the reporting of domestic violence cases. And this is not due to a rise in domestic violence in real terms, but rather it reflects improved community awareness about the law slowly over time. 
in saying that, in the scheme of things, considering, as you said, that the law has existed now for over 17 years, community understandings of the nature of domestic violence remain quite limited, particularly in rural and regional areas. Further, even if people know that domestic violence is a crime, there are often compounding barriers to access to justice for victims seeking to report violence through the state system. Overall, the implementation of the law in practice has been problematic, meaning that today many victims of domestic violence still do not receive protection from the state as promised by the law and correspondingly many perpetrators are still not held accountable by the state for the violence that they commit against their families. Uh, the focus of your analysis is on Aceh, right? Uh, a province in Indonesia, quite specific. Um, I wonder if you could share with us your findings. Sure. I focused on Aceh, particularly Banda Aceh, the province's capital city, as the case study for my doctoral thesis. The first important thing to note about Aceh is that very few cases of domestic violence are reported to the state via legal pathways. The majority of domestic violence cases are resolved via non-legal pathways outside of the state system, particularly informal dispute resolution or adat customary justice at the village level. And this is not uncommon. For those unfamiliar with adat dispute resolution, this usually involves um, issues at the community level being reported to the head of the village, the imam, religious leader, or an elder. Then the dispute is resolved based on local wisdom. In other words, the anti-domestic violence law is not applied in this context. Instead, disputes are resolved based on community understandings of domestic violence, which are not necessarily consistent with the law. Based on extensive fieldwork, namely interviews with relevant community leaders and domestic violence service providers in Banda Aceh, I found that community understandings of domestic violence generally fall into three main themes. The first category, violence ignored, reflects the prevalent idea in the community of domestic violence as a private issue. A commissioner from the National Commission of Violence Against Women, Komnas Perempuan, stated in an interview with me that across Indonesia, domestic violence is considered the private business of the family. Domestic violence as a private issue intrinsically relates to the socially constructed gender roles of men and women. In particular, the idea that the family unit or household should fall under the control of the male head of household. This gender norm is so strong that it's even legislated into Article 31 of the Indonesian Marriage Law, which recognises husbands as the head of the household. When reflecting the position of men as dominant or in charge of the household, respondents consistently indicated in interviews that as domestic violence occurs in the private sphere, it's only the business of the male head of household. It's because of these attitudes that victims of domestic violence are stigmatised or silenced for seeking help outside of the family sphere. Interviewees from the Centre for Women and Children's Empowerment, Aceh, Peduete Pedua'a, stated that one of the primary barriers which deters victims of domestic violence seeking help or reporting is stigmatisation from their own communities. Mm. 
The stigma, however, is not for being abused, it's for speaking out about being abused and in doing so challenging the absolute authority of the husband over the household. Mm-hmm. It's on this basis that violence is ignored by village leaders um, if victims speak out against their husbands about abuse. When victims of domestic violence are silenced when seeking help at the village level, this undermines the operation of the anti-domestic violence law and acts as a barrier to access to justice. The second category, violence minimised, refers to the finding that even though the anti-domestic violence law recognises physical, psychological, sexual and economic violence, in practice, community understandings of violence as non-physical are very limited. Generally, reports of domestic violence focus on cases with severe physical injuries. The overemphasis on physical violence over other types of violence can be seen in the way that communities speak about physical violence as being brat, besar, or para, heavy, big, or severe, as opposed to non-physical violence as kecil, tidak serious, or tidak berdarah-darah, small, not serious, or not drawing blood. In addition to community understandings that emphasize only serious, physical, even visual violence, and therefore minimize the seriousness of other forms of violence, physical violence is also normalized. Women's NGO workers reported that domestic violence is often assumed to be a normal part of married life. The same finding was also reported in Pam Nealon's 2014 study of domestic violence in Indonesia. The third category, violence justified, describes the phenomena at the community level whereby if domestic violence is not ignored, silenced, minimized or normalized, then it may be justified or excused. For example, some respondents suggested that a degree of physical violence, specifically disciplinary violence, was acceptable as part of the husband's role as head of household. This type of rhetoric was often linked to gender roles and norms, such as the husband's role as imam, religious leader of the family, and their responsibility to ensure that their wife and children conformed with their respective gender roles. One respondent explained that if women tried to report domestic violence, men would often justify the use of violence by saying that physical punishment is not violence, but a teaching method. Implicitly, they mean to teach women their proper role in the household. This logic also emphasizes the reciprocity of violence and essentially blames the victim for provoking violence in the first place, leading to strong victim blaming narratives. Justificatory rhetoric surrounding disciplinary violence often stems from interpretations of Surah Anisa, verse 434 of the Quran. This verse is interpreted by local ulama religious leaders in various ways, drawing a line between what they consider legitimate or illegitimate use of violence. My research wasn't investigating what the Quran actually says, but what respondents think the Quran says. And interpretations of this verse varied widely between different respondents. For example, one religious leader stated that if a wife was nushuz, disobedient, then disciplinary violence could be used, but only after a number of steps had been taken, including the giving of advice and sleeping in separate beds, and that violence was restricted to blows which did not cause pain or leave injuries. 
whereas other respondents argued that verse 434 should be interpreted as a virtual prohibition on the use of violence, relying on hadith such as, it is shameful if a husband chastises his wife and the best of you are those who are the best to your wives. Mm. The diversity of interpretations and the controversy surrounding which interpretation is correct within the community means that many perpetrators simply adopt an interpretation which justifies the violence that they've committed. Further, if community leaders also adopt an interpretation which justifies disciplinary violence, victims may be blamed for the violence committed against them and subjected to secondary victimization when seeking help. Hmm. From your explanation, there seems to be a lot of ways and a lot of levels even to normalize and justify domestic violence. And um, Aceh itself among Indonesians are known as Serambi Mekah, right? Basically saying that it's it's very Islamic. So I wonder maybe if you could share with us just a bit um, following up from my previous question and your explanation. How influential do you think Islamic teachings and practices are in encouraging or sort of provoking domestic violence? But also, how important are they to improve uh, the situation? That's a good question. So a lot of people have this idea about Aceh as being particularly Islamic. And this is because 98% of Achenese people identify as Muslim and to a great extent being Achenese and being Muslim is synonymous, culturally speaking. This is a really controversial um, a really controversial thing when scholars are talking about Aceh and Muslims and Islam. Women are generally portrayed as being victims of their culture or victims of their religion. I talk about this a little bit in my book chapter. Um, that's consistently the narrative about Achenese women, but it's not what I found when I spent um, those years researching in Aceh. Achenese women are interpreting the Quran and Hadith just as Achenese men are. And um, women's NGOs and women's activists are interpreting the Quran and Hadith in a way that is consistent with their beliefs. For instance, an NGO worker that I interviewed stated, we need to remind people that Islamic traditions and teachings are never about violence. And if we really grasp the essence of Islam, we know that Islam does not promote violence. The community believe that it is fine to beat women when they do something wrong. This misunderstanding strengthens the justification to beat women as, quote, Islam allows this. But we need to highlight that our prophet taught us how to treat our wives with kindness. So when we're asking questions like, does Islam promote violence or is there a link between religiosity and domestic violence? The answer is no. The answer is that it stems back to patriarchal structures that 
um, promote men as dominant in our society and promote women as submissive or subservient. And those gender roles and those gender norms are consistent across societies and consistent across different areas in Indonesia, whether it be a Muslim area or a Christian area. So it's the same ideas packaged in a different way. So we're understanding gender through the frame of Islam in Aceh in particular. That's the frame in which most of this is packaged. Mm. But it doesn't make it more patriarchal necessarily or more prone to domestic violence necessarily. We can see that the rates of violence are consistent across provinces, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim. But the language we're using um, is framed with Islamic language. Now, the danger in that is that there's a simplistic thinking that says, well, it's framed in Islamic language, therefore Islam promotes violence. But what we see on the ground is that there are also gender equal interpretations of the Quran. There are also interpretations that say that it's prohibited to use um, violence against your wife. Um, and there are many scholars that argue for these more uh, gender equal interpretations. Unfortunately, because of the patriarchal social structures that are prevailing over all of this, the dominant interpretation is patriarchal. The dominant interpretation will um, justify the use of violence in the family. Uh, but that's not to say that um, the Quran interpretations of the Quran have any necessary relationship with the promotion of domestic violence. It's not true to say that because there are men and women on the ground using their faith to empower themselves and to promote equality within their communities. So if you're interested in knowing more about Achenese women and how they challenge Sharia through their own religious interpretations and find empowerment through their religion, I've written an article titled Challenging Sharia for Inside Indonesia, which discusses this. Mm, thank you so much. And you allude to the fact or your observation that Achenese women um, cannot just be seen uh, or assumed as passive victims of domestic violence. And in your chapter, you actually went through a very good explanation about that. So could you maybe explain to us why you think that we need to reconsider the idea of Chinese women or Indonesian women or even Muslim women, in fact, as simply passive victims of domestic violence? Sure. Although my research is based in Aceh and in Indonesia and in the Islamic context, the findings of the research have broader implications for feminist research. An important implication is that it challenges a traditional scholarly approach towards victimhood. Traditionally, 
you're considered either a victim who is weak and passive or an agent who is strong and proactive. And these two options exist in a binary and compete against one another. However, in the Achenese context, we found that when women self-identify as victims of domestic violence, they are simultaneously acting as agents. This is because by identifying as a victim, they're implicitly challenging the entitlement of men to use violence and transgressing gender norms that expect women to be submissive to male authority. When claiming victim status, women are calling out domestic violence as a wrong and calling on their communities to hold perpetrators accountable. You can see how in the Achenese context, identifying as a victim is itself an act of agency, which disrupts the idea of a binary between victim and agent. Importantly, the acknowledgement of Achenese women as agents within the context of their victimization counters prevalent conceptualizations of women in the global South as blanket victims of their culture or religion, particularly Muslim women of color. That's excellent. I think that's a very important point. And we could talk a little bit more about the present situation. A recent study by the National Commission of Violence Against Women in Indonesia, or Komnas Perempuan, has found that the pandemic has limited access to safe reporting for victims of abuse. And in your book chapter, you point to how the domestic sphere and therefore domestic abuse are seen as private matters, right? As you just said. And therefore, that's the way male authority could not or should not be challenged within the private sphere. So based on your expertise, what would be key or what would be very important in improving the situation right now uh, related to domestic violence and the pandemic? I actually wrote about this issue in May 2020 for Indonesia at Melbourne. And unfortunately, since then, the situation with COVID-19 in Indonesia has continued to deteriorate. The Indonesian Legal Aid Institute has been saying literally over a year now that there is an increase in domestic violence, which is a parallel public health crisis developing alongside the pandemic. The impacts of the pandemic and the associated lockdowns include both the exacerbation and the increase in intensity of domestic violence, but also an increase in the frequency of domestic violence. Mm. All the same issues that we've just discussed apply during the pandemic, but now they're occurring in a pressure cooker. So basically everything just gets worse. For instance, gender roles and norms that mean that women carry a greater burden for caregiving, for children and for extended family, those have now been compounded for working women who may be expected to take on the bulk of homeschooling responsibilities whilst working from home. You can see how this could be a trigger for violence because as previously mentioned, if women are seen to be lacking in their performance of their gender roles, here we're talking about the provision of care, violence may be perceived to be justified as disciplinary to enforce compliance with these norms. And as we know, it's not uncommon for domestic violence perpetrators to try and justify their use of violence with excuses like, my wife didn't fulfill her household obligations. Mm. And as we know, women are under more pressure 
to provide this gendered care during the pandemic than ever before. On the other hand, social norms that position the husband as the head of the household and the primary breadwinner place further pressure on those men who may lose their jobs uh, or experience financial difficulty because of the pandemic. There has been widespread job loss in the face of COVID-19, particularly in the informal sector, and there's no adequate safety net provided by the government so families are falling into poverty. And although domestic violence can occur in any household, despite the income level, financial pressure and unemployment are well-known triggers for violence. Mm. The coronavirus pandemic presents unique challenges because there's the restriction on movement. And this means that victims may not be able to easily access support services. So not only are women experiencing this isolation in terms of access to state services, they may also be isolated from their um, local community-based or family-based support systems. A loss of independent income in the face of the pandemic for women could also increase their vulnerability and dependence on their husbands, which could limit their options for escaping an abusive situation. So we can see how that pressure cooker applies to all of the factors we know already exist. We've seen an increase in domestic violence and we've seen um, barriers to access to assistance. But what we haven't seen is any government um, response to the calls from women's advocates, activists and NGOs who've repeatedly said we need urgent further funding for domestic violence services. This is not new information. Mm -hmm. This is not a new cry for assistance from domestic violence service providers. There is a a very clear, very known issue. Domestic service provision, they need funding Mm -hmm. and they need clear communication and cooperation from the government. So the experts on the ground the advocates um, and service providers in Indonesia, they're best placed to help people. So it's not that we don't know what the solutions are. It's that the government, it's fallen on deaf ears. Hmm. The government hasn't responded in a way that we would expect them to respond in the face of a crisis. Hmm. The, The advocates and service providers in Indonesia are best placed to help but they're just not receiving the support from the government that they need. It's already so hard for victims of domestic violence anywhere, particularly in Indonesia, particularly facing all of these barriers that we have at the community level about understanding the dynamics of domestic violence. So you have violence ignored, violence minimised, violence justified, and then you have a pandemic on top of that which just compounds all of these barriers to access to justice. You have more people needing assistance for domestic violence, more cases, and the resources that this support um, providers have are stretched more and more thin and they're not receiving any further funding. Thank you so much, Balin. That was a very important and urgent analysis about domestic violence in Indonesia. I learned so much from talking to you today. Thank you for having me, Anissa. It's a pleasure to join you. 
That was my talk with Baldwin Jones, PhD candidate and honorary fellow at Melbourne Law School. Make sure you read her book chapter, The Politics of Care, a case study of domestic violence in Aceh in a recently published edited volume, Gender, Violence and Power in Indonesia Across Time and Space, edited by Catherine McGregor, Anna Dragojlovic, and Hannah Loney. Baldwin also has an article on Indonesia at Melbourne blog titled Home is Not Safe, discussing the increase of domestic violence cases during the pandemic. Her account of Aceh's regional Sharia regulation, which you can access on Inside Indonesia, is also an important article to read. We'll give you the links on the episode's notes. Talking Indonesia returns on the 5th of August with my co-host Dr. Dave McRae. You can find Talking Indonesia at Indonesia at Melbourne blog and wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Talking Indonesia podcast with me, Anissa Beta. Bye for now. Thank you.